begin. One is that uh, we're going to plan a baptism service this summer, and that will be around the, towards the end of July. I think the date will be 22nd. So if uh, anyone is interested, be sure to contact me and let me know. Also, I made the announcement last time that I think it's, uh, it's good and appropriate that when there are holidays for our uh, nation to remember the freedoms that have been won through military victory, such as Memorial Day, Fourth of July, Veterans Day, that's a good time for those of you who are either active duty military personnel or retired to wear your uniform and just to uh, honor our nation. Also remind everybody we've got a contest going, $50 prize, gift certificate for Christian books, whoever exercises the greatest critical discernment when they watch Jesus, the miniseries, see who can find out the most biblical errors. Now, one thing, don't worry about something that's left out unless you think it's something significant, because in any kind of a... I noticed that last week when I was watching that... um, uh, the Miracle Maker, which I thought was really well done, but they left a lot of stuff out because in two hours you can't put it all in there. So don't don't think of leaving something out as an error unless it ha- you think it's like they left out the resurrection or something. <laughs> so something significant like that. But if if they they leave out the feeding of the four thousand and only include the feeding of the five thousand, that that's not a problem. You know that you have to exercise a little editorial discernment in something like that because you can't put everything into a you know two or five hour miniseries so they're going to have to you know grant them a little literary license on, on stuff like that and then the other announcement just so it doesn't scare anybody you know you don't want to scare the sheep too much uh, when I was out in California this week we had a great meeting um, for those of you, those of you who heard this already you can take a mental vacation but <laughs> Uh, went out there for WHW Ministries. We met with the academic dean from Faith Seminary to work out uh, an arrangement where the men who come to WHW can then get course credit for their participation and uh, eventually through some off-campus, off-site learning programs that Faith Seminary has plus a trip to Israel that we're going to start promoting every year. Wayne House takes trips every year. I am indeed planning one next year as well. We're going to see how that works out. And uh, all kinds of other things. We, we put together a really good package deal for, uh, for the men who come. And as part of that package deal, in order to meet the requirements of their uh, crediting organization, uh, Wayne was made the uh, professor of record, and I'm going to be appointed a visiting professor of theology at Faith Seminary in Tacoma, Washington. So when you read that, don't get scared that well, that I'm leaving. That doesn't mean that. <laughs> it just means that, uh, that there's another title to put behind my name now. So, I think that ought to, ought to cover it. it was, it's exciting to see that that ministry is really expanding and is interesting and, and the association with faith may have another little thing. They, they always send a group down to to the kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific every year to teach the Bible. That apparently is a Christian kingdom. So I may be looking forward to... We're sending tapes there. Yeah, I know. I told them that. They said, well, we'll send you there. And I thought, that works for me. Uh, I'll suffer for the Lord on the beaches of Tonga. (laughs) Beat suffering for the Lord in Kazakhstan like (laughs) will happen this summer, so... You know, there's missionary trips and there's missionary trips. So, This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer. 
so that if you need to confess any sins, you have the opportunity to get back in fellowship so that we can pursue our study of the Word under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Therefore, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful opportunity we have to study the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done for us in the Gospel of John and for the tremendous insights that we are gaining about his person, about who he is, that we might learn to know him better, that our love for him might increase and be a further factor in our motivation towards spiritual growth. Father, we pray that as we study these important aspects of his person, that we may be challenged by them, that they may be used by you to motivate us to move us towards greater spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to the 17th chapter of John. The 17th chapter of John, and last time we began to look at what is called the true Lord's Prayer, the high priestly prayer of our Lord. This is in a transition position between... The upper room discourse, which actually ends, although they had left the upper room by this point, which actually ended with the statements at the end of John 16. By this time they have come to the Garden of Gethsemane, and this is Jesus' prayer for himself in the first five verses, then from 6 down through 20. uh, He is praying for Or 6 through 19, he is praying for his disciples, and then from 20 to 26, he is praying for the church. Now, that's the overall structure, but as we got last time, as we began to look at what's going on in the first five verses, I want to take some time to back away a little bit, because there's a dynamic that underlies this that is so vital and important for us to understand. And frankly, it's not taught much today. I'm always a little surprised and feel a little frustrated because the average church, the people only are encouraged to come maybe on Sunday. In fact, many pastors only get in the pulpit once a week, and yet they don't teach much. It's on Sunday morning, and they're afraid they'll run somebody off or scare somebody if they get too deep or use more than a three-syllable word. And I just wonder how, in fact, we expect people to be able to grow and mature as believers if we're not really learning the Word, and there's so much... to to understand there's so much to pull out of the Scriptures. And it is this that Scripture says is our spiritual nourishment. We are commanded to desire the sincere milk of the Word. We're to hunger for it. Just as a newborn baby cries out and screams to be fed, that's the role of the congregation, is to be like that that hungry six-month-old baby who's demanding at 3 o'clock in the morning to get its bottle. Just think about that. For those of you who are parents, that's a good analogy for you. That's how you should be towards the pastor in terms of teaching you the Word. And yet, so often we just sort of gloss over what is on the surface of Scripture. And yet, there is so much here, and this has really gotten into some profound stuff. The first thing we should notice, and I want to emphasize, is when we look at this, we have Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who claims to be Messiah, called the Son of God. He is coming before the Father, and he utilizes his title, Thy Son and the Son, in verse 1. And he concludes in verse 5 with a request that, he, that the Father glorify him with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now, as we stop and just think about that, there is one thing to say and to teach about what Jesus is praying for specifically. But we need to back up a little bit and realize that Jesus is coming in prayer to the Father. That means that he is performing an act of dependence upon the Father. And we asked the question last time, began to introduce this, what does that say about the essential relationship of the second person of the Trinity to the first person of the Trinity. We see an act of dependence here. Is this just a temporary act of dependence that takes place during the period of the Incarnation? Or is this somehow reflective of the eternal relationship between the Son and the Father, that He is eternally 
dependent upon the Father and subordinate to the Father in some sense. And we have to define that sense. Was Jesus subordinate in all aspects of his being, including the essence of his being? And if so, then he's less than God. And, and how, how does this work itself out? Now, to some people, I want to, by way of introduction, I want to emphasize this because some people, some people get the idea that, that, that this is just a lot of abstract theology. And I'm going to deal with some things that may seem a little theoretical and abstract to you at some points. But where we're going is that if you do not handle this biblically and correctly, then what you end up with is some concepts that are going to radically shift society, our culture, marriage, the role of men and women, and indeed it even impacts on political theory and governmental theory. See, the Bible has something to say about every area of life, including politics, government, and, of course, marriage. And this underlies all of that. This is, as it were, this is the ideological foundation from which all these other applications derive. And if you don't deal with this correctly or understand or have some grasp of it, then what happens is you're out here trying to apply certain principles, but you don't understand the rationale that undergirds them. And so when you get in certain contexts and certain situations, then it creates a tension and a problem because you're just trying to do something and you don't understand the whys and wherefores uh, that undergird why you're trying to do that. And it challenges our, our very thinking. And in fact, I just happened to pick up as I was working to clean off my desk at one point this last week, I have a stack of theological journals that I had not gotten to, and I pulled up the, I think it was the last issue of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society from 1999, and the, there was an article in there called, uh, it was on the eternality, on the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ, which is the very issue we're addressing here. That's where I'm going. We may not get there for a couple of weeks. This is going to be a detailed study because I feel convinced that we have to lay out the argument piece by piece, brick by brick, because we can't just jump to the third floor without understanding what the first and second floors talk about. And the third floor really gets us into some hardcore application, but we can't just leap there. That's, there's too much that undergirds all of this. And in fact, this entire article dealt with the historical teaching of the church that the sonship of Jesus Christ is eternal. It's not something that takes place in time, that he is eternally the begotten Son of God. That has to do with his eternal essence. And every single quote, that almost, that this article dealt with in terms of the opposing view dealt with the half a dozen or dozen theoretical thinkers out there who are arguing for, for a feminist position in the church uh, a position of women pastors, etc. And in order to make that social engineering conclusion, which shifts everything in the church and affects society and marriage, they had to go back in and tweak the doctrine of the Trinity. That's why this is important. You ch- systematic theology, what the biblical theology presents, is an integrated system of thought, such that if you change one element it has an impact on everything else. And if you change one thing in the Trinity and your understanding, then that has certain implications for other aspects, and then that changes application, and that in turn will change culture and change society. And that's exactly what they understand. And so we will look at that in a little more uh, detail as we progress. So as we come to this prayer, Jesus is recognizing to the Father that his hour has come. This is the time of his suffering. This is the time of the crucifixion where he goes to the cross as a substitute to pay the penalty for mankind, to die as a spiritual substitute for our sins. And so as we look at this, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son that thy Son may glorify thee. So the first observation here is that the concept of his timing, his hour, his crucifixion is related in the context specifically to the Father-Son relationship within the Trinity. And we have to take some time to 
to understand just exactly what that is. So this prayer demonstrates the dependency of Jesus Christ, and, and we have to ask several questions. The first is, in, in what sense is Jesus Christ subordinate to God the Father? Is it an eternal sense, or, or is it in time? Does it, it just have to do with his time of incarnation, or does it have to do with his position in relationship to the Father billions and billions of eons ago in eternity past? We need to ask and understand if this subordination, uh, is this subordination one of role and function, or is it a subordination of essence? That means that Jesus Christ, in terms of his core essence, is he subordinate to the Father, or is it just a, is he equal to the Father in essence, but subordinate in terms of his role? And then we need to ask the question, how is it? How are we to describe what vocabulary are we to utilize to understand the relationship between God the Father and God the Son in all eternity? See, vocabulary is important because you cannot think beyond your vocabulary. Vocabulary is the very tool of thought. And if you only know five words, you're extremely limited in how well you're able to think. And so we have developed in the history of Christianity uh, technical vocabulary. Paul developed technical vocabulary in the New Testament. And after the New Testament, other theologians have developed technical terminology to express concepts that are clearly biblical, even though the words aren't. There's always people, you'll always hear somebody say, well, I just want to stick with what the Bible says. Well, then you're going to stick with a very elementary understanding. You're going to, what you're basically saying is let's go back to the early 2nd century church and just think naively instead of precisely about what God says. Because words such as trinity, hypostatic union, uh, rapture, atonement, these kinds of words really aren't used in the scriptures. They are vocabulary words that have been developed Apart from the Scripture, words like essence of God, that's not used in the Scriptures uh, in that sense. Essence, nature, not in the sense that we use them when we talk about this. So we have to develop some vocabulary. Now, failure to understand some of these things, as I've already pointed out, has created a number of problems, and it's my role as a pastor, as your shepherd, to teach you. Uh, Jesus told the Apostle Peter, said, feed my sheep. That's, that's the priority. No matter what else happens, the pastor's job is to feed the sheep, and that means that the pastor's job is to teach the entire realm of doctrine. And sometimes you may see how it applies today, sometimes not, but your soul is always strengthened by doctrine, and we have to learn today not just what's going to be applicational tomorrow or this afternoon, but what builds and shapes the entire framework of our thought so that over the course of time, the soul is edified and when we encounter various situations in life, we have done our homework, we've been strengthened, the soul's been edified, and we can handle those particular situations. So as a pastor, that's my responsibility. And as part of that, I'm also to protect you from false doctrine, which means I have to explain these things, especially in light of the Current, current debate that's going on. 2 Corinthians 10.4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Now, what are these fortresses? We, verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Now, lofty thing is a rather vague term. That could refer to anything. But we have to look at the context. The lofty things are raised up against what? Knowledge. Therefore, we have to assume that lofty thing is kind against kind. So we're talking about every lofty concept, thinking, idea. Uh, where this whole concept of warfare that is explained in verses 4 through 5 is talking about warfare in the realm of thought. The Christian life is based upon thinking. It's not based upon emotion. It's not based upon just gathering together as believers and talking to one another and having social interaction. But it is so, so critically based on thought, learning how to think correctly about reality. And if you think about it, what is more significant than to focus on the ultimate reality in the universe, which is God? 
throughout all eternity, for billions and billions of eons, nothing existed except the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their mutual love for one another and their mutual interaction for for eons, unimaginable eons, unmarked time, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have eternal relationship. What is more foundational for us to understand than the ultimate reality of the universe, which is how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit relate to one another? Because that becomes the paradigm, the example, the foundation for being able to understand how every other relationship in the created order, functions. See, what, the way we usually go about these things is we start off in empiricism in the created order. And we go, you know, the, the approach of sociology, you go out and you look at all the different societies and cultures and you evaluate how their relationships, is it a patriarchal society, is it a matriarchal society, how do their relationships fit together. And you start with something in the created order and then you try to extrapolate from that to the universals. But that's not biblical. Biblical is you start with the universal, and that is God in His essential being, the Trinity. And then that becomes the paradigm and exemplar for understanding what all other relationships are to be. And therefore, you start with an absolute and work down to particulars. You don't start off with particular variables within the created order and then try to extrapolate back to eternal absolutes, because you can't get there that way. You can only go so far, and then it collapses, because something has to give you a framework for evaluating and understanding the, the, the underlying details. For example, you can go out and look at the kingdom of nature, the, the realm of nature, and you can see all kinds of things taking place there. And how do you determine what is a value, what you're to evaluate one way, what you're to choose, what you're to reject? You could look at, at the animal kingdom and you could look at particular species and you could say, well, you, have, you don't have anything like marriage. Some animals are somewhat monogamous in their life. Other animals, there are many, every year it's a different mate. And uh, you could look at that and say, well, that's a standard. You know, monogamy really doesn't work. It's not the, the prime thing in the order. So you choose one animal over another animal and you just, you just use that example. And, and people have done that. You look at some sociologists and that's exactly what they've done. And the... Bottom line is they, they attack the institution of marriage. But the Scripture tells you how to use empiricism correctly. For example, it doesn't say you can't learn anything from nature, but it defines how you learn something from nature. You look at the proverb, it says you go to the ant to see how they work. You, go to, you don't go to the ant to see how they operate socially because you have one queen and all these workers and every time they they uh, procreate with the queen, then they die. I mean, you just don't make that application. <laughs> All kinds of problems would happen as a result of that. But, but the Bible goes to the ant and says the ant gives you the principles for how to work diligently and how to work consistently and how to build a work ethic as, as an analogy. So the Bible starts from an absolute framework so that it gives you those governing values to determine how to evaluate things in life, And, of course, this ultimately starts with the person of God. So let's have a little introduction to the importance of the knowledge of God, the importance of the knowledge of God. First point, no doctrine. No doctrine is more significant, more foundational, and more crucial to our lives than knowing God. Nothing surpasses that. Look at some scriptures. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the end, it's the beginning. That respect, that awe, that authority orientation that is part of the fear of the Lord, that is where wisdom begins. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. It's the fool that has said there is no God. So if you want to guarantee a life of foolishness and a life of mental collapse, then you ignore God. But if you really want to know how things are, you really want to understand reality as it is, then God is the one who defines that, so that which is the beginning point is knowing God. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 1.29 is a warning because they hated knowledge, the rejection of the knowledge of God, and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The result was personal catastrophe. 
in times of adversity. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, what we're seeing here, when you go to the Bible, you get a completely different view of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding than you do from our secular education system. It's not the Greek concept of accumulating facts and information. It is understanding the nature of reality as God created it so that man as the image of God can then function within the realm of reality and not operate on his own concepts, which means that he is divorced from reality. This is the path of wisdom. Proverbs 2.5 states, Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So the knowledge of God is foundational to all other, other knowledge. Not only has God revealed himself to us, he has revealed himself to us non-verbally through, through creation. Uh, by non-verbally, I mean it's not through words. He has also revealed himself to us verbally. He has given us propositional revelation. That means that the scriptures are given in clear statements. A proposition is a technical term used in philosophy and it refers to a, a declarative sentence, a declarative statement that can be verified or falsified. Not a question is not a proposition. Uh, a command is not a proposition. Just a declarative statement, which is a statement about reality, that can be verified or falsified. And the scriptures are said to be revealed to us in propositions because it's giving us truth. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. It is the word of God. The word of God is powerful. When we look at Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is alive and powerful. It is powerful because it is truth. It is not powerful because it has some sort of internal mystical uh, enablement within it. It is powerful because it is truth and because that truth aligns our thinking with the reality of the universe. So that starting point is, of course, with God. And God has revealed himself to us to be understood. Now, that doesn't mean we can understand everything about God. God's omniscient. God's an infinite creature. We're finite. I mean, God's an infinite creator. We are finite creatures. There's no way we can understand everything about God. We can never know God exhaustively, but we can know God truly, and He has revealed Himself. Look at the Scriptures. Ephesians 1.9. He made known to us the mystery, the undisclosed revelation that relates to the church age, he made known to us the mystery of His will. He has revealed what God wants to accomplish, God is able to accomplish. God did not communicate this to be fuzzy. God did not communicate the Scriptures or reveal the Scriptures to give us something to get. What does this mean? Could it mean this? Could it mean that? Well, so-and-so says this and so-and-so says that. Well, let's just all get together and be glad that we're saved. That's the modern mentality. But the Scriptures declare that God has revealed specifics to us that we know things precisely and that we, the assumption is we can know them. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in them. And then skip down, Ephesians 1.17 states, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom. That's spirit, that's the use of pneuma. There is a sense of an attitude of a mental dynamic. It's not some sort of external spirit. I think there's some people that every time they see the word spirit, they think of an angel or a demon. But the word pneuma has many different meanings in the Scripture, one of which is attitude or a frame of reference and mentality. Giving you an attitude or mental attitude of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. So, so it is through prayer that God... Uh, that we are dependent upon God to reveal to us through the Holy Spirit what Scripture means. Philippians 1.9 And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And the, the dative there in real knowledge indicates means again that love is related to knowledge. Love is not related to emotion. We saw that in the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus says again and again, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So love is related to knowledge. You have to know the commandments before you can keep them. The commandments, we go back to Psalm 19, Psalm 119, it is the commandments of God that reveal his character. So once again, we're driven back that if you really want to understand love, what do you have to do? You have to understand God. And that means you have to understand the Trinity. 
Philippians 1.9, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. It is not some sort of superficial, sentimental, let's get together and enjoy our, our friendship and our fellowship and have fun together and go away with the warm, fuzzy glow that we just had a great time. We've all had those experiences. We all have great times. I mean, I, I went out to California. And uh, I just really enjoy RA, and we have a great time together. But when life gets tough, that friendship isn't going to get me through the tough times. What gets me through the tough times is doctrine, what's in my soul, and not what is in somebody else's soul or their friendship, no matter how valuable and wonderful that may be. Colossians 1.10, Paul says, So that you may walk. This is the purpose for why he's writing and explaining the doctrines of Colossians. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's lifestyle. So ultimately, it, it, it boils down to application, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and what? What are we to continue to do? Increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing. That means you go from learning a simple definition of the Trinity, that God exists in one, one, one in essence, three in person, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, to where you push beyond that to really understand and increase in the knowledge of God. We advance in our understanding of God that further motivates us to more understanding of God. It's a cycle. God gives us a little bit. We learn that. Then we're motivated to go on. But if we reject it, then we lose that motivation and we stagnate in the spiritual life. Colossians 2.2 That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself. Notice again the interconnection between understanding, knowledge, and love. And then Colossians 2.3, we study Christ in whom, that refers to Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we study the person of Christ, and we are laying the foundation for true wisdom and true knowledge. Peter reminds us that this is the essence of, and the means of our spiritual growth in Second Peter 1, 2, and 3, which I think are important verses that are often ignored today, Peter begins his epistle by saying, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. Now, once again, we have a dative case there, and it should be an instrumental dative for more clarification. It should be translated, Grace and peace are multiplied to you how? By means of the knowledge of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't just happen. It's not just sort of infused into you by the Holy Spirit because you're a wonderful person or you just happen to be in church or you sing wonderful hymns, but it's done by means of knowledge of God. We have to know the Word of God. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us, this happens at salvation, He grants to us, potentially, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life is eternal life. Godliness refers to the spiritual life and spiritual growth. And how does he grant that? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and essence. Once again, you have to know who he is because this is foundational to advance in the spiritual life. And then just to make sure his readers don't forget the point, when he closes his epistle, he says, but grow how? By means of the grace and what? And knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. So growth is related to knowledge. Now we all know that you can accumulate a tremendous amount of academic facts that are not going to get you anywhere. Gnosis puffs up, but epinosis makes you mature. And epinosis comes by a right relationship to the Holy Spirit and believing the truth, assimilating it into your soul under the teaching and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses that to edify us in the same way that you go out and you sit down and you eat a wonderful meal that has all the basic nutrients. Your volition is engaged up to the point that you swallow. That's analogous to the fact that you sit down at a plate on Sunday morning eating the Word of God and you listen to it and you believe it. That's your volition. But after you eat that, after you swallow, you exercise your volition... There are things that God has created built in automatic reflexes in your 
physical, biochemical system that it goes down your esophagus, goes into your stomach, chemical reactions take place, it's broken down, the nutrients then get shipped out by means of the blood system to all the various cells in your body in order to nourish them and feed them. Your volition's not involved in that. That is the automatic process that God built into the physiological system. And then you decide how you're going to use that energy. You decide how you're going to use your muscles. In the spiritual life, it's the same way. Once you take in the Word, you believe it, then the Holy Spirit is the one who works behind the scenes to store it in your soul, to recall it to your mind in time of application. And as you use it and apply it, then that strengthens your spiritual muscles and consequently growth takes place. And there's that dynamic, your volition to learn and assimilate the Word of God and then the Holy Spirit uh, role and responsibility. He's the one who does the real work of edification and strengthening inside the soul. And it's a joint project between you and God the Holy Spirit and it's not done apart from His Word. That's why we keep stressing the fact that you know hardly anyone is going to advance very fast if all you pick up is a little bit on Sunday morning. That's why we have the tape ministry is so you can get tapes if you can't be here on Wednesday night or you can't be here... Uh, because of work schedules or different things like that, you can get the tapes and you can listen. You can, when you're driving in the car, we need to continuously have our minds renewed and refreshed by the Word of God to counter the constant messages we get from the world system. Now, that's all the first point. The first point is just laying the, the issue that no, no doctrine is more important, foundational, or crucial for our lives than knowing God. That is the consistent testimony of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Then the second point is that we are not, is a warning. Don't fall into the trap of rationalization that we really can't know God. See, you'll hear that from a lot of people who really aren't thinking very deeply. We can't really know God. God's mysterious. God's eternal and infinite. Doesn't the Scripture itself say that God's knowledge is not our knowledge and God's ways are not our ways? So, so let's, let's not get involved in all this detailed analytical study. See, they've fallen prey to postmodernism, which is an, very much against any kind of an, analytical, analytical thought. So many people think that the best that we can hope for in studying God is just some sort of vague, nebulous appreciation for God. And that really embodies, if you think about it, that embodies a blasphemy against God. That is really saying, I can't know God. That God might have revealed himself in this, in this book with all these pages and all this information, but I really can't understand it. I mean, you think about all the great scholars and theologians, and they always argue with each other. They can't figure it out. Who am I to figure it out? So I'm just going to trust the Lord. And you just see this pious ignorance that people fall into and think that, that somehow that that makes them more spiritual. And what they've done is they've committed the blasphemy against God. They just say God's communicated, but he can't make it clear. God's communicated, but he's not going to help me understand it. I mean, there's just this, what it is, is this spiritual laziness. It's that I don't want to really take the time to discipline myself, to go to Bible class, make it a pattern of life, make it a lifestyle to be in class Sunday, Wednesday, listen to tapes, have my mind reshaped. I don't want to think. I just want to just sort of experience life and, and, and feel good about Jesus. And, and, and it just, it's just so hypocritical. So we have to be warned of that rationalization. Third, in the course of our study, we're going to develop various technical terminology, and I'm going to help you understand some of the historical terms that have been used to help us understand these relationships within the Trinity. Of course, most of you are familiar with terms like Trinity and hypostatic union, but we're going to look at other words such as modalism, monarchianism, subordinationism, and words that are also familiar like essence, person, and nature. But these are terms that have their roots in the origin of Christianity to help us think precisely about who God is. And if he's the ultimate reality, we ought to realize that the most important thing for us is to think precisely about who he is and to understand him. You can't love who you don't know. And so we're going to use this terminology to help us understand who, who he is. Fourth, nothing's more practical, ultimately. Nothing is more practical than for us to really push back our, the boundaries of our thinking to understand God at, at, a, at a greater level. Nothing will challenge us more. Because fifth, the Trinity is the ultimate and eternal reality. 
before there was mankind, before there was a universe, before there were angels, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed, and therefore that existence is foundational to every other existence. And then sixth point, just by way of introduction, I love this kind of a study because it has all the elements that I like. It demands a knowledge of the intricacies of Greek and Hebrew. And, and you just can't get through some passages here if you don't have a knowledge of the original languages. Secondly, it has a fascinating and dramatic development in early church history. I mean, people were martyred. People were exiled time and time again. Wars were fought over this. People were declared heretics and burned at the stake over this. And it's not just ancient history. In fact, there's a pastor in Southern California who's a pastor of one of the largest churches there. It's a very well-known national ministry, has written a number of different books, and he was ordained by an organization called the IFCA, Independent Fundamentalist Churches of America, uh, which brought him up on heresy charges about ten years ago because he did not believe in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. And you'd be surprised how many people don't understand that and don't really believe that doctrine. They think that Jesus Christ became the Son when he was begotten at the Incarnation. And that's not the historically orthodox doctrine. And this pastor, he's well known for it, his name is uh, John MacArthur. And uh, just within the last year, MacArthur finally uh, uh, reversed himself on this whole doctrine and uh, affirmed the doctrine of the eternal generation of Jesus Christ as the Son, which is very important, and, and I'm very proud of him for, for having made that shift. But so many people don't understand this, so it's not just something that happened a long time ago, but it's something that has significance today. In fact, I remember when this first came up, I was at Dallas working on my doctorate, and a good friend of mine who's a faculty member is um, one of the uh, in, men involved in this whole uh, charge that was brought up. And I remember when he told me this, I went, I seem to vaguely remember studying something about that in Christology, my third year in seminary, but I don't understand all the implications of this. And um, so it just shows that, that it, it kind of gets past a lot of people as to the importance of this. But it is, it is very, very important. And that's why it's rarely thought about and even more rarely taught. But we're going to get into that. And, and as I said earlier, it is a core issue in the development of what's called Modern evangelical feminism, which I think is a contradiction of terminology. And then finally, in terms of its importance, ultimately our very salvation hangs in the balance. This doctrine is so crucial that to not understand it really impacts the very core of Jesus' work on the cross. For Jesus' work on the cross is based on the person of Christ. Who he is determines what he can do. And so if we tweak out certain aspects of his essence, then we have problems with his work. So nothing, perhaps, is more practical for us than understanding our very salvation. So that's the background, and with that, I want to get into a study of the Trinity. We started it last time. We went through a couple of points, but I've added some to it since last week, because like I said, I want to build this. Now, now, if you get on the Internet... We're going to publish this doctrine out on the Internet, and it will have more to it than what I'm going to teach, because, frankly, I don't want to go through all the Scripture references and all the little details on Sunday morning, because it just gets a little too mind-numbing for a Sunday morning. So there will be more to it out on the Internet. Doctrine of the Trinity. Point number one, our basic definition. Now, a basic... Notice how the basic term, whenever you hear basic, that automatically implies what? that there's a lot more to it, right? Basics of anything implies there are advanced techniques, intermediate and advanced techniques. And how I'm just amazed as I've thought about this in the last three or four weeks, ever since we hit the doctrine of the procession of the Spirit back in John 16, I kept thinking, basic, basic, basic. Why don't we go beyond the basics? Basics tells us that I have to get these things in place so that I can develop and yet so often what we do is we teach the basics and we're just so proud of ourselves that we stop. Well, let's, let's, we're going to push beyond the basics, but I want to make sure that everybody understands the basics for the Trinity. So we'll start with the definition. God exists in three equal persons. Now, persons isn't always the best term, but it's the best we've got for understanding their individual identity. They each, when Jesus prays to the Father, he's not praying to himself. 
When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, we hear the Father speak in heaven, the Son, the Spirit descends on the Son in the form of a dove, and Jesus is incarnate in the water. Those are three distinct entities, and yet they have one identical essence that is so closely united that they are said to be one. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And how, how we understand that is very important. They have the same identical essence. They are co-equal and co-eternal. That is the definition of the Trinity. Now let's develop this out a little bit biblically so we understand its foundation because this is, frankly, where, where the Scriptures get attacked by almost every cult along the way. The Bible clearly teaches, this is point two, the Bible clearly teaches that there are distinct persons in the Godhead technical term for this is that there is a plurality in the Godhead, that there's more than one. This is in distinction to, let's say, Islam. In Islam, you have a Unitarian, or I used the term last week, monadic, which is kind of a technical term that will fry your brain if you think about it. It means only one. It's a solitary monotheism, that there's just one being, one essence, ultimately. Allah is one. There's no Trinitarian monotheism there. Same thing with Unitarian Christianity, another contradiction in terms. Um, It's a Unitarian view. There's no Trinity. There's just a Unitarian monotheism. And the Scriptures clearly teach that there are distinct persons in the Godhead. And last time, we went through this and we saw that this is evidence, first of all, in the name of God in the Hebrew Elohim, the I am ending, indicates. is more than just a plural of majesty, as some want to, want to say that in the Hebrew, if you wanted to really uh, emphasize something, you just added the plural ending on it, even though it's singular in concept, and that would be, they call that the plural of majesty. It's more than that, because in the second point, the, the use of plural pronouns in Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image, those plural, first person plural pronouns, us and our indicate plurality of the Godhead. Isaiah 6.3, we sang that this morning. Holy, holy, holy. That, that implies a Trinitarian relationship there. It's not explicit. It's implicit. Holy, holy, holy. One for each member of the Trinity. Last time we looked at Deuteronomy 6.4, that hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That's usually taken to em- emphasize the monotheism of Israel, and we compared it with, with some other passages where that word echad is used, like First Chronicles 29.1, where it says that God chose Solomon alone, and it indicates unity uh, or, or uniqueness rather than oneness, that it is the Lord is our God, the Lord alone is how that should be translated. And that does not indicate a oneness but a, a, a distinctiveness, the Lord alone. He is distinct from all other gods. We looked at that time, last time. We also looked at the angel of Jehovah in the Old Testament. The angel of Jehovah is in some passages clearly called God and worshipped as God. Genesis 31 and also Judges chapter 6 where Gideon, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon, the angel of Yahweh and Gideon in the middle of this interchange between Gideon and the angel of the Lord. Gideon quits calling the angel of the Lord the angel and starts calling the angel Lord and then builds an altar to worship the angel of the Lord. Now, if the angel of the Lord was some creature, then that would indicate the worship of a creature, and that would be a problem. But the angel of the Lord accepts the worship of, uh, of Gideon and accepts the honor that Gideon gets and accepts the title of God. So that indicates that the angel of Yahweh is not an angel, but is divine, full deity itself. And then in passages like Zechariah 1, 13 through 14, the angel of the Lord is carrying on a conversation with the Lord, with Yahweh. So we see that there are two persons there that are engaged. So the angel of the Lord indicates plurality in the Old Testament. And then we looked at a passage in Isaiah to show that Isaiah sees a plurality in the Godhead. We looked at Isaiah chapter 48, and specifically in verse 16, we read the, that uh, Yahweh the Lord is speaking and says, Come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. 
From the time it took place, I was there, and now the Lord God has sent me. Now, there we have me as one divine person. The Lord God is another and has sent me and His Spirit. So there we have plurality right there in verse 16. So that indicates the Trinity in the Old Testament. To build on that, two lords are mentioned. I didn't cover this last time. Two lords are mentioned in Genesis 19.24 and Hosea 1.7. Another indication of plurality. Hosea 1.7 reads, But I, the Lord is speaking, I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. So Yahweh is speaking and says, I will deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Now, that does not mean that he did not use those as some, as, as some secondary level, but the issue is, just as David said the battle is the Lord's and used his sling, he was completely dependent on the way he used his sling upon the Lord. That's the way the Lord will deliver them. It will be clear that it is not man's military skill, but the Lord's might that gives them victory. So there we see a distinction between the Lord and the Lord their God in verse 7 of Hosea 1. In another verse, point 7, Yahweh is distinguished, is seen as a distinct person from the Holy Spirit. This is seen in Isaiah 59:21. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit which is upon you. So there there's a distinction between the Lord and His Spirit. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring. And then another passage that does this is Isaiah 63.10, But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned himself to become their enemy. He fought against them. So again, Isaiah 63.10 shows a distinction between Yahweh and the Holy Spirit. So Isaiah has a lot of embedded verses that talk about distinctions in the Trinity. We cannot avoid that. There, are, there is clear, unavoidable testimony to plurality of God in the Old Testament. Now, it's developed much more explicitly in the New Testament. And last time we looked at, at uh, Matthew 28, 18, and, and 19. In verse 19, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The thing we ought to point out there is name, as we've seen many times, refers to essence. So we have the name, the essence of, and that's identity, and yet three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 13:14, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there's another clear Trinitarian statement. Now, by way of observation, we need to realize that if Jesus Christ has the attributes of deity, and the Father has the attributes of deity, and the Holy Spirit has the attributes of deity, this clearly shows that they have all the same elements of deity. They are one. They are identical in essence. Now, you have a problem here. You either have three gods, and you're ending up in polytheism, or you have to deal with this in a unique way because no other religious system has ever developed this kind of Trinitarian thought. And that's why the early church struggled with this for 300 years trying to figure out what is the best way to articulate this concept. And that's why they fought major battles over it. That's why it is so foundational. They understood that. Now the third point, we talked about the plurality, but... As a third point, we want to emphasize that the unity of God is also clearly stated in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 8.4 says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. So there's an emphasis on the unity of God. So we have plurality and unity as one. So that's why we talk about God being one in essence and three in persons. Now, the fourth point in the doctrine of the Trinity is that the three persons in the Godhead have distinct relationships. If they're persons, that means they can relate to one another. They have the elements of personality. They have volition and intellect. That means they can communicate with one another. 
and they can they know then they know each other fully of course because they're each omniscient they know each other fully and completely the father now the way that this has been developed in church history to express this is that the father is neither begotten we talk about Jesus as the only begotten we're going to come back and do a really good study on that we've seen that from John 1:18 the no one has seen the father at any time the only begotten of God, He has revealed Him. So this term begotten is used again and again. That God sent His only begotten Son. That, that we must believe, John 3.18, we must believe in the name of the only begotten Son. So begotten is the word that is always associated with the Son. It's never associated with the Spirit of the Father. So it is said that the Father is neither begotten nor does He proceed. See, we saw in John 16:24 that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. So the Father is unbegotten and He does not proceed from anyone. The Son is eternally begotten. That's the phrase. And we're going to come back and we have to understand what that means. He is eternally begotten from the Father. The question is, is that just an expression for time or is that an expression for eternity? And we find that in John 1:18, 3:16, 3:18, And then John... And then the Holy Spirit is said to proceed from the Father and the Son. So the Father is unbegotten and He does not proceed. The Son is begotten eternally from the Father. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Furthermore, it is stated, this is just traditional, historical, back to the Council of Nicaea terminology, the Father eternally generates or begats, begats the Son. The Father eternally generates or begats the Son. And the Father eternally spirates the Holy Spirit. Like the word inspiration to breathe. The Father eternally spirates the Spirit. That's the terminology that is used. This defines their relationship. The Father is unbegotten. The Son's begotten. The Spirit proceeds. So the Father generates or begats. The Father eternally spirates the Spirit. So each has a, there's a distinct relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this terminology expresses what that relationship is. And though they have these distinct relationships, none is inferior to another. The, the Son is not inferior to the Father because He's begotten. He, it, it's, it's, it expresses that relationship, but it doesn't make Him less than God. The Spirit is spirated. He eternally proceeds, but He's still fully the Spirit. He is undiminished deity, just as the Son is undiminished deity and has all the attributes of the Father. But we have to express what their relationship is. And then, point five, each member of the Trinity has equal authority toward creation. Each member of the Trinity has equal authority toward creation. Therefore, as I have said many times, going back into our study of Romans 1, 18 and following, is you really have a line. Below the line is everything in the uh, created order. Everything related to creatures. And above that line you have the Creator. But because of man's rebellion, he's constantly trying to take attributes from above the line and apply them to something in the creation. And then he ends up worshiping the creature rather than the Creator. And what we have... In this, I'm just saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all fully God. Undiminished deity, they are all individually above the line, and they all stand in the exact same relation to the created order as each other. This is found in the fact that the Father is the supreme authority in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. He is the supreme authority over all creation in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. The Son is said to be completely equal to the Father, which means He is equally in authority to the creation in John 5, 21 through 23. And then the Spirit is also viewed as equal to them in Matthew 12, 31. So they have equal authority towards the creation. Now that sets the framework. That's just basic Trinitarian theology. Now we have to move to the next step. We have to understand the full deity of Christ. See, each part of this puzzle is going to put together and fit together. And then we're going to reach a conclusion. 
And that conclusion is going to help us to understand what it means that Jesus is is begotten of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father. It's going to help us understand what this glory is that the Son had with the Father before all the creation. And then that, in turn, is going to help us understand the significance of the hour that has come. But you see, we can't just jump into this at the end without really appreciating what underlies... This is the most powerful stuff that is going on. There's nothing like it. Nothing else happened in human history like this. This is why history divides with Christ. He is the centerpiece of everything. And we must understand who He is. How can we love a Jesus? How can we love a God who we don't know? And the more we understand His dynamic and think about it, and all that's involved in the outworking of God's plan as Creator and as Savior, can we be motivated to really live the spiritual life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this glimpse that we have into who you are and that this helps us understand your your tremendous love for us that you gave your only begotten Son to go to the cross and die as our substitute. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation, that, that they would be challenged by what we have studied to realize that there is so much more to life than just what appears at the physical level, but that there is a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual element, a spiritual dimension that that is the undergirding foundation to everything in the physical created realm. And that there is a free offer of eternal life that you have not put upon us a burden that we cannot carry but that you have done everything necessary for our salvation. You sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross and there to die on the cross as our spiritual substitute to pay in his body the penalty for every sin we'll ever commit in human history. You did all the work. There's nothing for us to do. Father, all that is necessary is to put faith alone in Christ alone. So we pray if there's anyone here that right now they would make that most important decision that they will ever make in life which will determine their eternal destiny to trust in Christ alone for salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us, others, believers, to advance, to think about who you are, what you have done, your relationship with the Holy Spirit, with the Son, that that all these dynamics and how that relates even further to our own salvation and our own spiritual life, that we may be spurred on to, to greater maturity, to greater understanding and appreciation for who you are and what you have done in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.